Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Boards. This is our addiction medicine series. I'm your host today. My name is Mariah. Today, I have with me Dr. Jamie Allen. Um, she's a professor and uh, she teaches medical students at Michigan State University. And she also has an active research lab that she's a part of, which is really great. So would you like to say hi to everyone, Dr. Allen? Hi, everybody. And it is Friday today. So happy Friday. Thank you so much for doing this and taking the time out of your day to, to talk to us about um, benzodiazepines. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Given that this is an addiction series, it'd be, it would be good to point out that Dr. Allen is actually a part of something called MyCare, which um, actually teaches physicians about um, addiction medicine. So could you tell us more about that, Dr. Allen? Yeah, of course. Uh, so MyCare is a program that I'm a part of with other faculty and staff members. We're based out of Michigan, and our faithful leader is Dr. Kara Poland, who is absolutely amazing. MyCares was born a couple years ago, and we started by training physicians to get board certified to deliver addiction medicine care to their patients, because this is a unique period in time where you don't necessarily have to do a fellowship to get board certification. So the team created modules where they can watch these modules, and our team helps them through the application process to become board certified. Um, we're also working with undergraduate medical students to provide addiction medicine curriculum at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. And also we're starting to work at the College of Osteopathic Medicine to provide addiction medicine training to undergraduate med medical students. So it's been a really fantastic journey. And I'm really happy that we're able to provide this information to undergraduate medical students because the earlier you can provide training, the better it reduces stigma and we can get these students out there and working with patients and treating them the sooner the better. That's great. That's such a great cause that you guys are working towards. How many, how many people have you guys had so far? I know you were talking about how you have a physician from almost every state in the U.S. We have enrolled physicians enrolled in the program, over 400 um, wow. We have physicians from almost every state in the U.S. We're still looking for a physician to enroll from Hawaii. Uh, so if you're out there listening, you know a physician who's interested from Hawaii, send them our way. Um, <laughs> we had an inaugural class of about 40 students at the College of Human Medicine. Um, we're starting to enroll some students in the College of Osteopathic Medicine. And in our late clinical years in the College of Human Medicine, um, we're starting to really pick up enrollment. It's a virtual elective. We do it in the fourth year, so you can do your interviews and things like that and still do this virtual asynchronous elective. Um, we started out with just a handful, and now we're starting to get, you know, five, six, seven every two weeks. Um, so we're getting a lot of interest, and we're really, really excited about that. That's great. Thank you for all your contributions. Um, it sounds like a great program, and, and I hope that, you know, you recruit people from Hawaii also. So thank you for all that. And now we can start talking about uh, benzodiazepines. So, Dr. Allen, if you have anything to start off with in terms of um, if you've been seeing benzodiazepine addiction in your region at all or with the patients that you deal with, um, you can talk about that now. 
course. So um, the thing to think about with benzodiazepine and benzodiazepine use and misuse is that when you think about how benzodiazepines work, they really modulate, modulate chloride through that GABA channel. And on their own, it's fairly hard to overdose on benzodiazepines on their own because really you need GABA along with benzodiazepines to, to let chloride flow through that channel. When you get into trouble is when you start mixing benzodiazepines with other substances, and that's when you see a lot of toxicity coming through. You know, there are there is benzodiazepine use and misuse um, throughout the state of Michigan, and it's been, you know, fairly steady, and, and we can see this in combination with other substances like opioids, um, like alcohol, and that's when they start to get fairly dangerous. Benzodiazepines do have a distinct binding site from alcohol. They have a distinct binding site from barbiturates. And then opioids have a whole other receptor that they bind to. So there's no competition for binding, if you recall. So putting multiple drugs together can be very dangerous when we're thinking, when we're thinking about how these drugs work together. So that's my, that, those are my comments on that. Okay. Uh, good to know. And what sort of adverse effects would you see if someone um, was taking benzos? Right. So if you think about uh, benzos, of course, they work at that GABA channel. And we, when we think about GABA as a neurotransmitter, GABA is generally a neurodepressant. So we're going to think of neurodepressant activities. So you're going to think about sleepiness. You're going to think about sluggishness. You will not have the pinpoint pupils like you will have with an opioid overdose. Um, so those pinpoint pupils are mediated by separate receptors. That is not mediated by GABA. So that's why you do not see that. Um, so that would be something different in the stem of a question when you're trying to differentiate this. Um, but you can have decrease in respirations. Um, you can potentially have a decrease in heart rate and things like that. Um, so when you're looking at question stems and when you're, when you're looking at patients, depressants are all going to have a pretty similar phenotype uh, or presentation in the patient. There's going to be some subtle differences that might point you one way or the other. You know, for example, um, opiates, again, would have those pinpoint pupils, whereas benzodiazepines would not. And now differentiating between a benzodiazepine and a barbiturate, which work on the same channel, would be virtually indistinguishable clinically um, unless you did a urine drug screen. Okay, great. And and these are all great points that you're hitting on because they love asking us for, for board questions about overdoses or withdrawals. So it's really good to note, like you said, with the opioids and the pinpoint pupils, how you don't see that with the benzos. And like you said, with the barbs, it's very similar in presentation. So normally for yourself or for physicians, what sort of um, disorders or conditions would you prescribe benzos for? Oh, that is a great question. Um, so when you think about prescribing benzodiazepines, short-term for management of anxiety comes to mind. Uh, Long-term, we really want to think about things like SSRIs, but short-term for things like panic attacks is certainly appropriate. Again, long-term because of the potential for addiction and misuse, SSRIs are much preferred. You will see um, benzodiazepines prescribed for alcohol withdrawal. And benzodiazepines are the drug of choice for status epilepticus. 
Um, so you will see these used many times for status epilepticus. They're the drug of choice for that. So those would be my top three. There are many other conditions where you could prescribe a benzodiazepine, but those would be the top three that come to mind. Great. Um, and just like you said, for the alcohol withdrawal, do you know which specific medications, like which specific benzo we'd normally want to give for alcohol withdrawal or um, panic attacks or anything that you want to specify? Oh, that's a great question. So when you think about the benzodiazepines, you really want to think about active metabolites and you want to think about the half-lights. So there are some really short half-life benzodiazepines. So midazolam or versed, very short, IV only. If you're doing something like a colonoscopy and you want something fast off, fast off, that you can do IV titration, midazolam would be, would be great. If you want something that has a little bit longer half-life, uh, say you're going to have a dental procedure and it's going to last about two to three hours, and you might have uh, give them something before the procedure, you might think about something like diazepam or Valium that has a longer half-life because you want it to last all during the dental procedure. Now, a lot of these benzodiazepines have some active metabolites. Some of them do not. Uh, so lorazepam is a great one. It does not have any active metabolites. Um, lorazepam is often our first choice in many things like status epilepticus and delirium tremens. One, because it doesn't have any active metabolites. Two, it's, it's fairly quick onset, and it's got what I call a medium sort of half-life. It's not as long as diazepam, but it's not as short as midazolam. Um, so lorazepam or ativam is often one of our first choices for many things. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned earlier about like the side effects that occur if a patient was to take benzos. Could you talk about the sort of side effects that would um, occur in an overdose if the patient was to take too much of the medication or the drug? Right. So overdose, um, overdose effects are typically extensions of natural side effects. So overdose would just be more extreme examples of side effects. Typically, the patient will fall asleep before they can take too much benzodiazepine. And benzodiazepines, again, taken alone, often because you're dependent on endogenous GABA, patients typically, and I don't know of any case where this has happened, but I could definitely be proven wrong. Patients typically cannot die from an overdose of a benzodiazepine alone. It's, it's pretty rare. So the side effects of this would be a natural extension of the effect. So patients would fall asleep. They would be extremely lethargic. Their respiration rate would be very low, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is why we, we caution them before we give them the medication, do not take while operating heavy machinery, which in my mind is always a forklift but they probably mean don't drive a car, right? So <laughs> Exactly. Um, right? It's always a forklift. Yeah, I'm I can sure do that too. Yeah. sure they need a car, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it could cause dizziness and, th and things like that in people. So overdose is just a natural extension of those, those effects that occur as a side effect. Okay. And, and let's say that there was a patient who OD'd. Um, what would be the steps that should be taken if... if this patient was to present to you? So since benzodiazepines rarely result in any fatal consequences when taken alone, and this would change if this was a multi-drug overdose, 
typically you just watch and wait with the benzo. There is an agent that you can give to knock the benzodiazepine off of its site. But the problem with that is once you reverse binding of a benzodiazepine, you can induce seizures. And it's actually perhaps a bit more risky to reverse the effects than to just wait it out. So typically, this is not done. It's usually a watch and wait sort of situation. So it's observation. And then any sort of supportive care that the patients might need. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and like you said, the because I think in, in school, a lot of times we learn, you know, we give flumazenil. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, in real life, like you said, it's more of a watch and wait type of deal. So that's yes. really important to, to clarify. Yes. We teach flumazenil. It's there mechanistically. It works. But, you know, there is the risk of seizures. And because on its own, on their own, they're not terribly bad. You know, I was taught taking sure of time, waiting it out kind of thing. And that's typically what occurs in the clinic, unless there's something else on board that you need to think about. Right. Okay. Um, and before we, we move on, we can, um, we can go over a clinical vignette. Mm-hmm. So I can read it. And then if you'd like to like talk to the audience about how to handle a question like that, that would be great. Sure. So we have this one question. It's from Amboss. Two days after mm-hmm. undergoing uncomplicated total knee replacement, a 55-year-old man develops increasing anxiety, agitation, hand tremor, and nausea. He told the nurse he saw a bear in his room. His pain has been controlled with IV morphine. He has a history of advanced liver disease. He drinks seven cans of beer daily, and he's diaphoretic. His temperature is 99.7 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse is 118, respirations are 18, and blood pressure is 146 over 92. Administration of which of the following drugs is the most appropriate next step in treatment? A. Naloxone B. Chlordiazepoxide C. Ciproheptidine or D. Lorazepam So Dr. Allen, how would you approach a question like this? And um, can you go over why the other options would be wrong? Yeah, you bet. So I look at the last sentence and I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to answer. So what drug am I going to pick? What's the most appropriate next step in treatment? What am I treating? What in the world am I treating? So I'm going to look back and look for the cues. And he's experiencing anxiety, agitation, hand tremor, and nausea. He's seeing a bear. I'm assuming there's not a bear there, so he's having some hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and he his pulse is high. His respirations are mm, okay. Blood pressure is a little bit high. That's probably all going along with what's happening. The key here is maybe the hand tremor going along with everything else. And the fact that he's had a surgery and he's in the hospital, he's got advanced liver disease, and he drinks seven cans of beer daily. So this suggests that he potentially drinks a good bit, seven cans of beer daily, is drank a good bit for a while, um, potentially has advanced liver disease secondary to drinking, and he has probably stopped drinking abruptly. And this could be, along with the hand tremor, that's really sort of your giveaway, could be delirium's tremens from a withdrawal of alcohol. And this is a little bit tricky, right? Because, you know, you can potentially have a high from morphine where you get an anxiety-like but. 
you don't typically get a hand tremor with that. Right. So, and the fact that he has advanced liver disease, seven cans of beer daily, two days ago, he had to stop that for a total knee replacement and has a hand tremor. This points me towards delirium tremens. This can progress to seizures and progress to death. So this must be treated right away. Treatment, as we said before, for delirium tremens is a benzodiazepine. So the best right answer here is a benzodiazepine. And here we see two. We see chlordiazepoxide, which is an old benzodiazepine. And don't get fooled by this because if you go by the endings, it doesn't end in a PAM. It's like the one benzo that doesn't end in a PAM. They just can't make things easy for us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then we see lorazepam. So what's the difference between chlordiazepoxide and lorazepam? So chlordiazepoxide is an old benzodiazepine. And it happens to have a lot of really active metabolites. It's going to be very problematic in a patient with liver disease because metabolism is going to be impaired, metabolites are going to build up, and you're going to have a lot of active metabolites around. So you want to choose something that doesn't have active metabolites and you can use with a patient with advanced liver disease. And that's going to be your friend, lorazepam. That's why I often, you know, lorazepam or Ativan is a go-to because it's just safe in the face of a lot of, you know, advanced complications like this. So that's why lorazepam is your best right answer and chlordiazepoxide is not the best right answer. So chlordiazepoxide can be used in delirium tremens, but because of the active metabolites, it's not the best choice in this patient. Okay, now, perfect. That was a great walkthrough. Sorry, go ahead. I just interrupted you. No, you can interrupt me anytime. I'm a teacher. I love being interrupted and ask questions. So go for it. I was going to ask um, if in a clinical setting, if this patient didn't have a liver disease, would chlordiaz epoxide be perfectly okay to use? Yeah. Yep. If your pharmacy stocked it. Now that's the I, you know, when I worked in the pharmacy and dispensed, I rarely saw this. But yes, if it was there, that would be perfectly fine. Okay, perfect. And um, why wouldn't the other two answers um, be correct in this case? So naloxone is a mute opioid antagonist. And that would block um, the action of morphine. Um, this would probably make his anxiety and agitation go up because you're going to increase his pain. That's probably going to make his pulse go up, his blood pressure go up. And you're not going to do anything good for the patient with that. Superheptidine. So that's an old drug. It's an antihistamine, anti-muscarinic drug. Um, it's not going to do anything for the condition. And it can cause some hallucinations uh, because it has a central action. So in addition to just not being relevant to the condition, you might make some of these anxiety, agitation, and hallucinations worse. Exactly. And this is normally used in serotonin syndrome that we normally mm -hmm. learn about. Um, but yeah, yep. like absolutely, like you said, this one and naloxone won't, aren't relevant to, to this patient at all. But thank you so much. That was an amazing walkthrough. And I just had a question for you about, do you feel like benzodiazepine abuse has become more common recently? And, and is there a reason for that? Well, you know, that's a good question. And I don't know if it has become more common recently. 
you know, I think the world has become a crazy place recently um, with COVID and people have been on a lot of hard times recently. So I think drug misuse in general uh, has spiked for a number of reasons. One, just the availability of opioids has just shot through the roof. Two, we, we don't have enough healthcare providers. And certainly, we do not have enough people to provide mental health care. We just don't, particularly in Michigan. And our providers are worn out. They're burnt out. It, it's just, it's hard, right? And so people sometimes turn to drugs of misuse for an escape. And I can't say necessarily that I blame them because it's hard right now. And, and COVID's here and the job market's hard and, you know, numbers have ticked up. And benzodiazepines are a part of that. Now, I don't know the actual numbers off the top of my head, but I do know that the world is a crazy place and, and drug misuse in general has ticked up a bit. So absolutely. I don't know if I exactly answered your question. No, absolutely. You did perfectly. And how do you feel like as physicians or future physicians that, that we could combat this, this drug misuse in the upcoming years? Well, I think the best, there's multiple things you can do as future physicians. Get training, get training on how to treat these patients. And there's a, num there's a number of things to learn. You know, Dr. Pullen is an addiction medicine specialist. She has taught me so much about addiction. First and foremost, the patients are people, right? And a lot of times they use drugs as an escape. And like I said, I cannot blame them because sometimes I would like to escape too. I get that, right? And we never really know what's going on in the world. We never know. The other thing is that, you know, you kind of have to meet these people where they're at. And, you know, abstinence isn't necessarily always the goal. And I think it's hard to understand that sometimes. Um, and that risk reduction is really where it's at. That's kind of eye-opening, I think, for a lot of a lot of providers and a lot of medical students, right? You don't have to get them down to zero. It's a risk reduction strategy. So that was also something very new. But I think that that's a loaded question, right? <laughs> There's right. so much. There's a whole curriculum on this. But if you can get some training in addiction medicine, either through some formal training, go lobby your curriculum committee, or go shadow an addiction medicine doctor, or, you know, there's some, we just had an announcement for opportunities at the Betty Ford Clinic. You could go do this immersive experience. If, if you're really interested in that, go and do that because it would just be life-changing in how you see these patients. You brought up some very good points. And, and one of the things that, that really resonated with me that you brought up was about treating these patients like people, because I feel like, you know, a lot of times, like you said, we're overburdened and, and we sometimes forget ourselves how to, you know, how to act and remembering right. that these patients are, are people and treating them appropriately is so important. And I think that's a really great point that you brought up because, you know, it's just about, unfortunately, the society that we live in, you know, I'm in New York right now and there's so many different types of medication and drug um, misuse that I also witnessed in the hospital during rotations. And it's really sad, but like you said, it's an escape for some people and like, you know, we can't, we can't always blame them. So having to work with them, you know, finding a plan together and, and treating them like humans, I think is, is, um, one of the better approaches. 
Yes, absolutely. And I come from, I have addiction in my family. So I have family members who struggled with addiction. And I know firsthand that they're beautiful people. It's just, you know, some of it's genetics and some of it is life. And you don't necessarily get to choose what life throws at you. And, you know, it doesn't make you less of a person. It's just everyone, you know, is sort of, I've heard the analogy, like everyone is in maybe the same sea, but we're not in the same boat. Like some people are on yachts and some people are on little life rafts, right? So we're all in this, like, whatever this is world that's going on right now. But some people are in these gigantic boats and some people are on these tiny little life rafts. And I think we just have to remember that we might be in a nice sturdy boat, but not everybody else's. Exactly. So um, those were great points. I love talking about this stuff because it just reminds me about, you know, as students, our responsibilities to these patients and the oath that we took. So it's great getting these reminders. So moving forward, we can discuss some of the symptoms that occur if a patient is withdrawing from benzos. So um, could you talk about some of the withdrawal symptoms and how we would potentially handle those? Oh, yes, that is fantastic. So your withdrawal symptoms are going to be sort of opposite of your effects and symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms would be tachycardia, diaphoresis. Um, Your most severe withdrawal symptoms would be seizures. Um, Supportive care. There's no FDA-approved medication to treat benzodiazepine withdrawal, but you can use supportive care and you can actually put them back on a benzodiazepine and gradually taper them off. Okay. Um, And what would we want to give for the seizures or side effects? Right. So, you know, if it were, you know, seizures, you would probably want to put them, give them a benzodiazepine for the seizures, keep them on a benzodiazepine and gradually taper them off. Got it. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, if they were diaphoretic, you know, give them something cooling and things like that. Um, Racing heart, you could potentially give them propranolol, stuff like that. Great. And could you mention some of the contraindications for benzodiazepines that students should know? Right. For sure. If there's any allergies or anything like that, you definitely want to watch out taking these with anything else that binds on that GABA channel. So something like phenobarb, something like alcohol, you have to be very careful with any other sort of sedative that you want to be careful taking it with. Um, What am I missing? I feel like I'm forgetting something where I am. I have a list. Hypersensitivity in neuromuscular diseases like myasthenia gravis, narrow angle glaucoma, respiratory depression, drug dependence, and pregnancy. Those are the things that I have on my list. Say those again. The first one was... Hypersensitivity to benzo, okay. so like the allergies, I think. Yep, allergies, yeah. What else? And neuromuscular diseases like myasthenia yeah. gravis. Yeah, that would cause more weakness, absolutely. Um, yeah. Narrow angle glaucoma. Yeah, so narrow angle glaucoma, that, that's actually a medical emergency that you have to get taken care of right away. So that would, that would be, you don't want to further worsen that with benzodiazepines, although it would be potentially unlikely that you would give it during that time. But that's absolutely true. Yes. Okay. And then I have respiratory depression, such as COPD and respiratory failure. You, now, see, if they had COPD and if it was controlled, it wouldn't necessarily be a counterindication. Right. However, right, right. 
they were in an exacerbation of COPD, that's when you would want to stay away from it. Right. Right. So a stable chronic COPD would be fine, but an exas- acute exacerbation would be correct. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yes. Perfect. And the last one was pregnancy. Now, pregnancy is interesting, right? And so it's a risk-benefit kind of thing and breastfeeding as well. So I would definitely stay away from them in pregnancy unless the benefit outweighed the risk for some reason if you had some sort of psychiatric disorder. Breastfeeding, if there was extreme anxiety, you could always, you know, give it pump and dump. Um, but there's not a lot of good studies on benzodiazepines and passing through the breastbone to the baby. So that's also a risk-benefit thing to talk about. I wouldn't say it would be necessarily absolutely contraindicated, but you'd have to do it with extreme cost, extreme caution and consultation with the psychiatrist and an OB. That makes sense too. All righty, we can do our second and last question. Perfect. So let me read it here for us really quickly. A 24-year-old graduate student is brought to the ED by her boyfriend because of chest pain that started 90 minutes ago. Her boyfriend says she has been taking medication to help her study for an important exam and has not slept in several days. On exam, she's diaphoretic, agitated, and attempts to remove her IV lines and ECG leads. Her temperature is 99.7 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse is 128, and blood pressure is 163 over 97. Her pupils are dilated. The most appropriate next step in treatment is the administration of which of the following? A. Dantrolene B. Propranolol C. Activated charcoal D. Ketamine E. Lorazepam or F. Haloperidol So how would you address this question and what's your thought process when reading this? Oh yeah, so this is a great question. Again, I would go to the very last sentence and try to figure out what is going on here. And this is asking me, what's the next step in treatment? So again, I'm going to try to find out what's actually going on with this person. So she was, she's relatively young and she was brought in because of some chest pain. And chest pain in a young person is, you know, fairly rare unless they have some family history or in the face of some sort of stimulant. So they're taking the exam and hasn't slept in several days, and they're diaphoretic, agitated. They have, you know, pretty normal temp, pulse is a little bit high, blood pressure is a little bit high, and pupils are dilated. So all of this together, diaphoretic, agitated, hasn't slept, chest pain, pupils are dilated, increased blood pressure, increased pulse. This is all sympathomimetic, right? This is all sympathetic. Right. And if you want it on a stem, sometimes it's really hard to figure out sympathomimetic versus anticholinergic because a lot of times stimulating sympathetic looks like blocking cholinergic. You right. want to look at to see whether or not they're sweating because the sweat glands have sympathetic input to muscarinic receptors. So they sweat when it's sympathetic input. But if it's anticholinergic, they're dry. So sympathetic, they're sweating. Anticholinergic, they're dry. That's a great. That's a great little way to remember it. I never thought of it like that, but that's so helpful. <laughs> Thank you. 
Of course. Yeah. That's the way, that's the way to distinguish those two. Are they sweaty or not? That's why they had to put it in there. So this is sympathetic. It's probably some sort of amphetamine, cocaine, something like that. Okay. So now let's scroll down to the answer choices. So when you think about this, um, you want to give something to basically block the sympathetic or activate some sort of calming part of the nervous system. We see propranolol, okay? You might want to jump to that. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad choice, okay? Propranolol, O-L-O-L, that's a beta blocker. Anything that ends in O-L-O-L is beta blocker. Tip here, anything that ends in almost O-L-O-L is a beta blocker plus something else. So, Sotolol is A-L-O-L, almost a beta blocker. It is a beta blocker and a class 3 antiarrhythmic. Pervetolol is I-L-O-L, and it's a beta blocker plus an alpha blocker. And the beta lol is A-L-O-L, so it's an alpha blocker and a beta blocker. And then propranolol is after the letter N in the alphabet, so it's non-beta specific. Anything before the letter N is beta 1 only. So this is a non-specific beta blocker. But she is on cocaine or amphetamine or something, and this is stimulating her alpha and beta receptors. So if you block just the beta receptors, beta 1, beta 2 with propranolol, now the norepinephrine that's dumped out in her system, the alpha is going to be completely unopposed on her vasculature. That's going to send her blood pressure skyrocketing. So this is not appropriate to give. If this were labetalol, which blocks alpha and beta, that would be totally appropriate. But since it's propranolol, which is just beta, this is an inappropriate answer. So the Razapam, our friendly Razapam, is here. <laughs> Yay. So, and look, she's agitated. She's trying to remove her IV lines and she has chest pain. This is going to calm her down. The Razapam is going to calm her down. When she's calm, that's going to relieve her chest pain. And she's going to become unagitated. That's going to lower her blood pressure. So lorazepam is our best choice out of all of these choices. And we'll talk about why the other ones are incorrect. Activated charcoal. You know, activated charcoal is making a comeback in everything, you know, including toothpaste. But she, who knows how long it's been since she took her last pill. And it's only going to help with the contents in the stomach. She's already got systemic symptoms. So this isn't going to help you here in this, in this situation. Dantrolene blocks the rhyanidine receptor, which blocks calcium from spilling out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. This is indicated for malignant hypothermia. This is not malignant hypothermia. Um, that would be in the setting of an inhaled anesthetic. Um, that's not what's going on here. Ketamine is an interesting choice. Um, ketamine is an NMDA antagonist. It is used, it can, as ketamine can be used for depression, refractory depression. And this can be used as an anesthetic. It's also used you know, on the street as known as special K. This would not help with the sympathetic uh, symptoms and would lead to some other symptoms that would probably not be very pleasant at this point in time. So your best right answer here is our friend, lorazepam. And then we have F, which is haloperidol. Uh, haloperidol is a first-generation antipsychotic. 
uh, that's a D2 antagonist. And the dopaminergic antagonist is not going to help with any of our sympathetic system uh, sympathetic effects. Those are all mediated by alpha-1 and beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. So the D2 receptors have no role here. So that's not going to help us either. That was perfect. Um, you had all the key points for each answer choice. And everything you said was absolutely on point. So that's our last question. Um, and thank you for differentiating the lorazepam versus propranolol because I think a lot of students, including myself, um, would have been tripped up by that one because we normally think, oh, propranolol, you know, will lower the blood pressure or stuff like that. But in this case, as you said, the unopposed alpha um, receptors would cause her more harm. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a great explanation. Thank you. And I think we're reaching the end of our podcast. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add about a benzos or, or a drug addiction in general before we end, end the show? Well, you know, I think um, shore up on your intoxication and withdrawal and treatment of those. I think those would be big on, on the boards. But again, also, like I said before, try to get out there and, and talk to someone working in the field. I think that's going to be really invaluable to you as future physicians. And thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast, Mariah. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for dedicating your time and energy into this amazing cause and, and also speaking on our podcast. It means a lot. And um, hopefully we can do another series sometime in the near future. That would be a lot of fun. I'm up for anything. Great. I hope you're all staying safe and happy holidays. 